Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased to welcome Anne May Chang to the podcast. Anne May is a leading advocate for social innovation and author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. As Chief Innovation Officer at USAID, Anne May served as the first Executive Director of the US Global Development Lab, engaging the best practices for innovation from Silicon Valley to accelerate the impact and scale of solutions to the world's most intractable challenges. Prior to her move into the public and social sector, Anne May was a seasoned technology executive with more than 20 years experience at leading companies such as Google, Apple and Intuit, as well as a range of startups. Thank you very much, Anne May, for taking the time to join me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a delight. So you are just about to publish a book, which I know you've worked on for some time, Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. And I'd be really interested to talk to you about some of the really interesting ideas in this book and get also a sense of, you know, how you see the the world of, I guess, social good, social innovation at the moment, maybe just a feeling for the landscape and uh, maybe some pieces of advice, some tips uh, for social entrepreneurs struggling and working, doing the good work uh, in in, in this field. I mean, maybe a good place to start would be if you talk a little bit about your background, because I think that is uh, very interesting and plays into, you know, your interest in this whole question of innovation. Absolutely. So um, I started out my career in Silicon Valley. I studied as a software engineer, worked in a bunch of both big and small companies in Silicon Valley for 23 years, uh, the most recent of which was at Google for eight years. And so, you know, in my blood is is really the sort of way uh, Silicon Valley works. Um, But I had decided about, you know, 20 of those years that I was going to spend the first half of my career in Silicon Valley in tech. Um, And the second half of my career, I wanted to really make a shift and focus on something that felt more meaningful, where I was doing something to make the world a better place. And so I made that shift about seven years ago, um, as I was coming up to that point in time, decided that I wanted to focus on global poverty, because it seemed like it was so much at the root of many of the things that I cared about. Um, And so I ended up going to the State Department through a fellowship program called the Franken Fellowship. Um, and, you know, I call it my my custom masters in public policy because I got to learn from, you know, the best and brightest who are doing this work in the real world, both at the State Department and all the, you know, diverse range of organizations the State Department partners with. Um, but then decided that I needed to, you know, get closer to, you know, the work on the ground and ended up going to work for an international NGO called Mercy Corps. Um, And then I got my dream job, I would say, uh, as a chief innovation officer at USAID and had the opportunity to be the first executive director for the Global Development Lab there that was set up by Raj Shah as the newest bureau at USAID, really focused on this exciting two-part mission, one, to identify breakthrough innovations, but two, to transform the way that we do development itself, to look at ways that we could accelerate our pace of progress through science, technology, innovation, and partnerships. Great. Now, the, 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 the question, the, the, the focus here, I guess, is this whole question of social good and um, social innovation. Now, can you talk a little bit about the role of innovation 
in the field of social good. I know um, innovation is the heartbeat, or so it goes, uh, of, of Silicon Valley and indeed of mainstream business. What is the role of innovation? Is it important in social good? It's a very different context, isn't it? In, in, in your know, conventional business, um, I guess uh, the motto is that you know you need to try things and f- be w- willing to fail. Really, is 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 part of the the way you innovate. I guess that's slightly different when you're working in the social sector. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I I truly believe that innovation is equally, if not more important in the social sector. And and the reason I say that is that if you look at the the problems that we see around the world as social ills and challenges that, you know, really uh, affect people and our planet, we're not making enough progress. Um, you, you compare it to the SDGs, you know, there's many of the SDGs we're just not on track to reaching. And the only way to bridge that gap is essentially to come up with better solutions that are more effective, that are less expensive, that are more scalable. And that's what innovation is all about. And I think people have really recognized this. I've found over the last five years that in the so, uh, global development space, that innovation has, if anything, become an overused buzzword, that everybody's talking about innovation. It's hard to come across an organization that isn't talking about innovation these days. But one of the challenges, I, th- is I think that in our rush to embrace innovation, there's been a bit of a misunderstanding about what innovation really is. Um, a lot of the focus on innovation has been on looking for that big idea, piloting you know, something that uses a sexy technology or you know, has a great story behind it. And what I found is that very few of these innovations are actually reaching significant impact at scale and, and moving the needle on the problems that we care about. Um, and, and so you know, one of my favorite quotes comes from Edison, Thomas Edison, and he says that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And I guess what I would say is I feel like in the global development sphere, we've overly focused on that 1%. It's absolutely essential to come up with new ideas and new approaches. But what the book does is really turn our focus to that 99%, which is the blood, sweat, and tears that are necessary to take that germ of a good idea and test, iterate, and improve it to bring it to real impact in the real world. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and to what extent do you think that social entrepreneurs and people working in the sector get that idea? How, how well understood do you think is this idea of, of you know, innovation and coming up with new ideas and so forth? Yeah, so I, I think I think the social entrepreneurs are certainly at the forefront. And I talked to over 200 organizations in the course of writing the book to learn from what they've done. And, you know, I think that there's many social entrepreneurs who are really pioneers in this space, who are blazing a path and, and showing us how it can be done. Um, at the same time, I would say that the, the notion of really true innovation, that kind of embracing the persistence of testing, measuring, and iterating to to get to impact is still um, in in the early adopter stage, I would say, in in the global development sphere, which means that there are many people, um, social entrepreneurs in particular, who are really embracing these types of methodologies and who are seeing real results. But the mainstream of global development has lagged behind. And I think that there's good reason for that, because there are a number of structural issues that make it much harder to do this in the global development sphere than certainly in Silicon Valley. 
Yes, yes. Now, I've spoken to uh, some people over the years that are very active in, in, in the lean, I guess, uh, startup lean uh, area, uh, Steve Blank, Eric Reese. Can you just maybe uh, identify a few key features of this model for listeners? Yeah, um, the core of the lean startup is really the build, measure, learn feedback loop. And so if you think of the lean startup, it's essentially the scientific method. Um, and, and the idea is you, if you have a particular solution that might or might not work and you're working in a realm of uncertainty. So if you have a solution that you know works, you know exactly what it's going to do, you know it's going to solve your problem, you should just implement it. But if you you know we generally work in situations of high with high degrees of uncertainty that we don't have solutions that really solve the full scope of the problem. And so in those kinds of circumstances, which is similar to what startup companies operate under in different conditions, um, that's where we need innovation. And so the idea of the scientific method is to help us de-risk and refine a particular solution to get to something that will really work to address the problem. And so we start out with a hypothesis of uh, something that we believe our solution will do. Um, and the build, measure, learn loop is essentially the process of testing that hypothesis. You build an experiment that um, allows you to test that hypothesis as quickly and cheaply as possible. Lean Startup calls that an MVP or a minimum viable product. Um, and then you measure the results of that experiment. What happened? Did it? Did you get the results you expected or not? And what can you learn from that, which is the last um, element, which is, you know, stepping back and learning. Like, is did your experiment succeed, in which case you can kind of move forward, you know, test your next hypothesis or, or start scaling a little bit more? Or did it fail, in which case you may need to consider a different solution altogether? Or was it somewhere in between where maybe there's a tweak or refinement to your solution that might make it better and then test it yet again? That's, that's very interesting. Where does uh, learning from other people's experience fit in here? Now, it often seems to me in the world of social good, social innovation, that many, many people are working on similar kinds of problems. How well are organizations doing at uh, identifying and transferring learnings from other uh, similar uh, organizations in the same area, or indeed not even necessarily in the same area, but who have made breakthroughs that are relevant to their services? Um, that's a great question. In my experience, the results are mixed. There are some organizations that are very good at doing this, that are looking, you know, sort of scouring the world to see what are the best things out there and looking at how they can build on those successes. Um, I would say more commonly, organizations are often looking to come up with their own solutions. Again, I think we face a lot of systemic challenges in the way our industry works, where people are rewarded for coming up with something novel more than coming up with something effective. Um, because, uh, you know, funders, donors, um, NGOs like to find ways that they can stand out. And, you know, that often comes by highlighting a solution that's unique in some way. Um, and so I think that there's not as much attention as there could be, although certainly some organizations do do this well. But I think we could do more of building on each other's solutions and collaborating together on solutions to make them the most effective possible rather than proliferating a thousand different variations on the same theme that all compete with each other. Yes, absolutely. Now, what kind of uh, insights, what would be the benefit, would you say, for a nonprofit uh, looking at a, a lean startup process of experimentation? Well, I, I think if you th think of the traditional way of running a nonprofit program is that we spend a lot of time up front uh, coming up with a proposal, a design, 
you know, building infrastructure, hiring people, and then start deploying it and, and, um, you know, making our intervention, whatever the case it may be. In the process of all that planning and designing, we're making a lot of assumptions and there's a lot of risk that's building up. And so there's a good chance that something will go wrong. You know, I, I certainly am not somebody who in these kinds of complex problems we're trying to tackle am likely to get everything 100 percent right. And I think few people are able to do so. And so with the lean approach, the, the idea is that rather than spending so much time planning on paper up front to get out of the building, as Steve Blank would say, and get into the field and actually try things, try things with just five people, 10 people, and you'll learn and be surprised at how things play out in the real world that are just different than what you might expect. And the sooner you can do that and the sooner you can get real data from real experiences, the quicker you'll be able to iterate and improve your solution and get to something that will be as effective as possible. Now, these organizations, let's say, take uh, social entrepreneurs, for example, they're working in particular context. They have particular kind of funders. They're in an ecosystem, I guess. To what extent are these ideas, uh, to what extent does the ecosystem allow this approach? To what extent do funders, are they okay with this kind of model and indeed other stakeholders? Um, I, I think that one of the biggest reasons that we don't see more uh, innovation and more experimentation is the nature of funding because funding tends to be fairly inflexible, both that you're expected to have a plan, I call it a grandmaster plan um, from the beginning and just execute to that plan and it's very difficult to deviate from it. Um, funders also have particular interests and silos that they operate in that may constrain the, your degrees of freedom in terms of coming up with the best solution, whether it's a technology they favor, a geography or demographic or otherwise. And so I think funders can really constrain our ability to innovate, our ability to experiment, our ability to take risks. That said, um, you know, we found, I've seen many organizations find ways through that, right? That that certainly there are non-traditional funders who are willing to be more flexible. Um, you know, what, whether it's innovation windows, such as we had at USAID, such as the Development Innovation Ventures, the Global Innovation Fund, or our Grand Challenges, um, some venture philanthropists, some, you know, uh, more forward-leaning foundations, that there are these sort of increasingly number of innovation windows where funders are recognizing the need for this kind of more flexible, more risk-seeking funding. Um, Aside from that, though, I think that one of the things that doesn't happen is we don't push back on on traditional donors enough. I've I've had many conversations with organizations where um, they're just hesitant to to ask for the flexibility that they might need or to go back to a donor when they have gotten a grant and say, hey, what we started out doing isn't quite working. We think there's a better way. Um, and I, so I think part of it is is trying to take some risk on the nonprofit or social entrepreneur side to push back on funders, even the more traditional ones. And sometimes they'll say yes and sometimes they'll say no. But I think that we can ask more often and really make the case that we can deliver far more benefit if we um, if, if we are able to be more adaptive. Right, right. Now, I know one, one issue that is common throughout the sector is this idea of um, coming up with lots of different solutions or trying to find solutions, a kind of, what you might call it, solutionitis, without uh-huh. really understanding the roots of the problem, without really understanding the ecosystem, without understanding the status quo. 
why a particular uh, situation has arisen, who in the system is benefiting from, shall we say, a particular way it operates, you know, that there might be some uh, uh, obstacles to change and things like that. Where does that fit in in your approach? I think one of the differences between the traditional lean startup model and what um, I'm proposing in lean impact is that we start in a different landscape. The, the first thing is I think that in this sphere of social good, we tend to plan based on constraints, not based on the needs. Um, and so the constraints may be your available funding, your available staffing resources, the size and envelope of a particular grant. Um, and so we often look within those constraints and we say, what can we do? And so it causes us to focus on a solution that we can do with that, within that envelope rather than looking at what is the need in the world and how can we get there. Um, and so I think we need to start by thinking bigger and being more audacious in terms of what we're trying to achieve. I think it's also much harder in the social good space, especially in global development, where the people that we're working with, our, our so-called beneficiaries, are often people who are quite different than, than ourselves. They may live on the other side of the world. They have certainly grew up in different cultures, may speak different languages, may just have very different circumstances than what we grew up with ourselves. And when that's the case, I think we need to take a, a lot more care in, in understanding their circumstances because our assumptions are often and our intuitions are, can often just lead us astray. And so one of the things, you know, we say in the lean startup world is the idea of, you know, fall in love with the problem, not your solution. And I think that this can be hard in the social sector because we're so much, we spend so much time identifying with our solution and promoting our solution. And we, almost any solution, you can find someone that's, that's received some kind of benefit from it. And so you can hold on to that and want to kind of do more of that. And it can hold us back from really looking at, are there options out there that can actually do far better than that? Um, and, and continuing to look at better solutions that really focus on the problem at hand, even if it means letting go of our particular technology, our particular approach, or even the role of our own organization. That's very interesting. Now, you've talked to many, many organizations. Do you have any examples there? That sounds like a very compelling argument, as you say, not to find, go for the, you know, I mean, the low-hanging fruit so much as the big, you know, the big uh, impact, you know, scale type solution. Yeah, so, you know, one one interesting case study is, I, I think, someone that you've talked to is VisionSpring. And, you know, VisionSpring went through sort of a classic process that I think, except, except that I think that they were really visionary in looking at where they were headed to. So, you know, they had this really ambitious goal of addressing the something like 2.5 billion people who need corrective eye, eyeglasses but, but aren't, don't have them. And these, you know, by getting eyeglasses, they can make people far more productive, be able to, to learn and work much longer. Um, and, you know, they started out, you know, classically trying to do the work themselves. You know, they started distributing eyeglasses with vision entrepreneurs in, I think it was El Salvador in India, um, and were doing good. And people were getting glasses. It, it was miraculously changing their lives. But different than other nonprofits, they recognized that um, 
that, that this model was not going to be sustainable. Um, they just would never be able to raise enough funds to get anywhere close to the size of the need. And so they pivoted several times. Their first pivot was to set up a hub and spoke model where they would actually set up vision centers in more urban areas that could cross subsidize, reaching out then to the more rural areas and getting to people who were with lower incomes who were further away. That allowed them to start becoming more self-sustainable. But then they still recognized that it would take a long time for them to be able to build up the infrastructure and the staffing to really scale up an organization to do this on a worldwide basis. So their next pivot, um, they turned to actually partnering with other organizations. Um, one big one in particular was BRAC in Bangladesh, who already had a network of community health workers across the country of Bangladesh. And by selling through that existing network, it provided um, BRAC, a, a new valuable product that their community health workers could provide. And it allowed VisionSpring to far more rapidly than they could have built out their own infrastructure, get to serve that market. And so together, they've now distributed over a million pairs of eyeglasses. And then VisionSpring started you know, setting up other partnerships. I think they have over 300 partnerships now. Um, but even that wasn't enough. You know, they, they currently on that model have a goal of reaching 10 million people in the next few years, but that's still a tiny fraction. And so their, their most recent pivot has been to spin out something called the iLiance that's really bringing together private sector manufacturers and eyeglass um, providers along with governments and nonprofits to look at how do we address some of the ecosystem challenges um, so that we can build eye care into existing services. For example, they've worked with the government of Liberia to uh, include uh, eye services both with their um, existing community health workers as well as have eye exams be performed in the public schools. So sort of this evolution, I think, has been really interesting in going from sort of I'm, we're going to do it all, all ourselves to we're going to partner to do it to we're really going to need to change the system um, around the world. That's very interesting. That's a very inspiring story indeed. Um, and, and at the heart of uh, a lot of the uh, social entrepreneurial uh, challenges is, is this question of finding the right business model, in a sense. It's a way of, you know, they, they need to try and generate some kind of revenues and, you know, uh, see what they can do there and, and, and iterate, as you say. And it, that is, I, I guess, a, a key part of the, your approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, traditional nonprofits, you know, have have operated on receiving grants to deliver services. And I believe that there's very few areas of societal needs where grant money is going to be sufficient to get us to the size of the need in the world. And so I think we do need to think about from very early stage, we often, you know, run a pilot. Um, and once it's successful, think, okay, now how are we going to scale this thing? But it, it's a model that needs to be built in from the start, because it can dramatically affect the design of your solution depending on how you're expecting to scale. And so I, I think that one of the core pillars that we need to test um, in order to validate a social innovation is, is what is the engine that will drive growth? And Kevin Starr, um, who I think you've also had on your program, puts it well when he defines scale not as the, the number of people you've reached, but the slope of the curve. How do we go from linear growth to exponential growth? And that involves some sort of engine that's typically either 
a private sector business model, government adoption, or some sort of replication or franchising. It's rare that you can get to that sort of growth curve by simply, you know, being able to raise grant money and raise more and more grant money to continue to serve more and more people. Yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with with his thinking around those questions and is absolutely very interesting and very uh, timely approach to those questions. Now, I want to talk about the, the an idea about, about execution. In in many uh, business situations and indeed in in in, in s- s- social good situations, execution counts for an awful lot. And you can have a lot of talk about strategy. You can have a lot of talk about you know big vision and big ideas. But really, a, a lot a lot of it does come down to being able to execute well. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's that's what the the focus of Lean Impact is about is really on that execution. You know, we we rely too much on coming up with a perfect strategy, the perfect design. You know, re, you know, looking to experts to have the perfect ideas. And just it's so rare that we're able to to come up with something that's you know hits hits on all all d- dimensions that we need. And so, what I believe is the, you know the biggest factor in successful innovation is the speed of your feedback loop. You know, I, I worked at Google for years, and it, people think of Google as one of the most innovative companies on the planet. But if you think about it, Google's core product, search, is not a new invention of Google. Google didn't come up with search. There were many companies before Google, you know, such as AltaVista and Yahoo and InfoSeek and Excite that we've now all forgotten about. Um, so Google didn't invent this new category, but what they did was that um, Google, you know, constantly every day runs hundreds of experiments on their web page and improves their algorithms, their feature set, their user interface, so that they serve customers better and better every day, every year. Um, And so Google Search today is nothing like it was a few years ago. And I think that we need to apply that same kind of rigor and that same expectation of progress in what we're doing when it comes to social good as well. Great, great. That's very interesting. Now, um, so you're a social entrepreneur today. You, you, you're already in the field. You're already working. Where do you start? I can see if somebody's starting from scratch, I can understand that. So if you're already out there, you might be there for a few years, you're down the road. Do you have any suggestions of where they should start their journey to, you know, to, to follow the lean impact model? Absolutely. I think a lot of people think of innovation as just something you do at the very beginning when you're coming up with something new. But I think it is something that absolutely needs to take place through the entire life cycle of of um, of an organization and, a, and of a solution. And so if you're already out there, you're already, you know, have a product or service or intervention that you're deploying, what I would suggest is to step back and look at what are the key success factors in getting to the kind of impact and the kind of scale that you need. Um, a lot of times, you know, we, we get so caught up in the day-to-day tactical stuff that we lose sight of the big picture. And so, you know, in, in the Lean Startup, Eric talks about the no of vanity metrics versus actionable metrics. And vanity metrics are what we tend to focus on, which is like how many people have we reached or maybe how much money have we raised. Um, and so I think uh, what I've seen a lot of social enterprises that are out in the field is there's a focus on how do we get to more people and continue to get to even more people. Um, but if we step back a little bit and look at well, what are the real success criteria here, these are the unit metrics, which Eric calls actionable metrics or, or innovation metrics, that are really the drivers for success. 
right? So these might be for each person you reach, how many of them um, want what you have to offer? How many of them refer friends to come back? How many of them change their behavior if you're training them to do something? Um, what's the cost? What's the, the cost per person? If you're able to tune those metrics, then as you get to more and more people, you're, you're bending the curve where a dollar is going to buy more than just a dollar of benefit. You can start looking at how a dollar can buy $2 of benefit or $5 or $10 worth of benefit. And that allows you to then achieve that sort of exponential growth, both in the, the reach that you have, as well as the depth of impact you have, because it's ultimately the breadth and depth of the combination of the breadth and depth of your impact. That is the good that you do in the world. Now, stakeholders, we mentioned before the funders, and so forth. What would you say to uh, social entrepreneurs who are having difficult conversations with funders who have uh, been funded by people who don't get it? I, I think that is depends a lot on the particular situation. Certainly, it's important to find funders that are aligned with you. Um, some of the best social entrepreneurs out there I know have made the tough decision to turn down money from funders who just weren't aligned or were too restrictive in their funding. Many of them have moved to a notion that they'll only accept unrestricted funding or funding that's already aligned with their existing strategy. Um, because taking the wrong kind of funding can really set you back and can put you, you know, on the wrong path. And so that's a tough decision to make. You know, certainly I recognize that uh, sometimes we need to take unaligned funding in order to survive. But if we get caught in a cycle where that's all we're doing, it can, can completely lead us off mission. So sometimes it just involves making tough choices. Sometimes it also involves really looking for the right kind of funding at the right time. Um, you know, I, I think that we often take too much money too early and scale too quickly before we've really validated the core tenets of our solution based on these sort of innovation metrics. And so um, one way to get the, you know, more of the right kind of funding is to take less money in the beginning and spend that money really validating some of the, you know, the, the core drivers that will cause your solution to really succeed. And if you can demonstrate through that, that you can lower the costs, increase the impact, increase the yields, the acceptance rate and so forth, then you have some data to go to the funders who care about those kinds of things and be able to show them that you have something that is far more cost effective than exists out there. You're not then just pitching an idea because if you're just pitching an idea or pitching a solution, um, you're going to attract the kind of funders who are looking for that and want to hang on to that and not necessarily be willing to go with you to take the risks to continue to optimize for the, the success metrics that will really matter in the long run right right mvp what advice do you have again for social entrepreneurs on this this question getting the mvp and you know uh, taking that approach yeah so mvp stands for minimum viable product um, and, you know, from working at USAID and working with a lot of global development programs, we tend to think about even a pilot as often like a one or two year endeavor that, you know, we go out, we, we set up a pilot, we run it for one or two years, and then we learn something from it, and then we might do something else after that. Um, an MVP is a much, much smaller version of a pilot. Rather than building out the full solution and running it for a long period of time, you know, I ask the question, what could we learn in a day, in a week, in a month? 
that would help us get closer to the ultimate solution. You're not going to have this sort of level of rigor and the level of confidence that you would in running something for years and running a full randomized control trial, but it'll help you learn much more quickly so that when you do run that longer pilot, you're far more likely to succeed and far more likely to get better results. So an MVP might look like um, for um, one of the, the companies that we funded out of USAID, the, the lab at USAID was Off-Grid Electric. And they're a company in Tanzania that provides, that sells home solar systems and has a, had an innovative business model of a pay-as-you-go business model using mobile money because uh, their customers were low income and couldn't afford the upfront capital costs of buying a whole home solar system. And so by mo using mobile money, they were able to allow their customers to pay it off for a few cents a day over a few years and make it much more financially feasible. But to build out the, the technology and manufacture the technology to do this, to attach a system to collect mobile money payments and turn off the solar um, energy if, if the, the fees were not paid, that would take a lot of expense and a lot of time. And so instead, they want to test this model of would customers be willing to pay on an ongoing basis a small amount to get solar energy? And so instead, they took off-the-shelf home solar systems, um, brought them to customers, and asked them if they'd be willing to pay whatever the amount of, you know, a few dollars a week for this home solar system, and sent a person around. I think in their case, they had a Maasai warrior go around to each village and collect the money each week to see if people would continue to pay. Did they find enough value in the solar system? Were they able to raise the funds to be able to pay for this on an ongoing basis? And only after they validated that people would really pay, um, did they invest in automating this and building the technology technology for this so that it could be far more scalable. Yes, I interviewed them as well. And there is a great story and a great success. Um, and uh, good lessons, I think there as well, as you say. Um, so maybe then just a, a few tips. Finally, um, we covered quite a lot of ground here, we've dipped into different aspects of the the model, um, maybe two or three uh, final recommendations for social entrepreneurs on their journey. Sure. Um, I would say first, you know, get out of the building, you know, don't don't spend as much time as we tend to trying to get things perfect, trying to design a, the best solution. But learn by doing you know, that, that we're, we're working in complex environments and there's nothing like getting out in the field to see how things are going to work. Um, I think the second that, that we talked about is, you know, be willing to be picky about your funders. I think, you know, it's tempting because of the, the financial pressures I know all social entrepreneurs are under to to take money that that is going to lead you down the right path, the wrong path. And so be willing to push back on funders and also, you know, really make the effort to seek out funders who are aligned with your missions and, and the directions that you're trying to head. Um, and. I think the, the third thing I would say is think big. Um, you know, I think we could be more audacious in what we try to do. Look at the size of the need that exists in the world and how you're going to get there. It may not be your one organization being able to scale to meet that size of that need. But if you have a solution that's more cost effective than anything out there, I feel like we have a responsibility to figure out how do we get that to all the people who could really benefit. 
Fantastic. It's great advice. What's next for you now? And the, the book's out now. And I guess spending a lot of time talking to people and making sure that, you know, sharing these ideas. Yeah, I think what's next for me is is getting the word out, um, letting people know about the book, but more so, you know, I, I believe that um, I, I'd love to see uh, this become a movement that just as a lean startup has become the sort of standard best practice in Silicon Valley and everyone sort of, even if they haven't read the book, assumes that this is how you're going to do your work because it's been proven to work much better. Um, I'd like to see us adopt that kind of mindset in the social sector where both funders, social enterprises, nonprofits all recognize that and ask the question of how could we learn more quickly? What are the greatest risks? You know, play devil's advocate and really ask those hard questions and find the ways that we can learn as quickly as possible and, and adapt as quickly as possible to get to the best solution. Great. It's a great vision. Where can people find the book, Anne? Yeah, so um, I have a website. It's at www.leanimpact.org. That's leanimpact.org, where you can find everything you'd like to know about the book. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing the great work you've done, the research, and uh, I wish you the very best of success. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.